0: I was watching the last dance with my sons, and I realized, though it was about Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and the Chicago Bulls, one of the biggest factors of the Chicago Bulls was Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson was the leader, the coach. He's the person, as soon as he stepped on to that team, he helped them to get a ring. He was able to help them to see who they were individually and as a leader, and as a team. And I think that's why we need a coach, because you need somebody to help you develop yourself personally and within a group. So that's what Al Hardy is here to do. That's what I'm here to do, is help you to grow personally and within your team, within your group, within your family. Go to www.MrAlHardy.com forward slash coaching sessions. Promo Code, owls, chicken and waffle. going on everybody this is al hardy uh and this is al's ticket and waffles and i i have a pleasure of having a conversation with a sister who um she has range you know uh I, I was talking to uh one of my boys and he he we was talking about actually was talking about women and we was talking about what it is that the qualities that one wants to have in a woman and one of it and he was saying range meaning that. She's broad in the things that she, she she could talk about, but she still has to her core principles. And um I would say that this sister, uh Delisha Grant, is one of those young ladies. Uh she's uh, super dope. And I say this with everybody, but I wouldn't bring you anybody who's not dope. So she's super dope because uh by by trade, she's an attorney, but and uh she also has a podcast. And it's called December 26th. Um, What's going on, Delisha? How's everything?
1: Mr. Al Hardy, what's good? All is well. I can't complain.
0: That's good. That's good. You know, to me, I feel like I know you, but I really don't because I talk to your brother all the time. Right. You know what I mean? (laughs) So I kind of talk through him to kind of get to understand you a little bit. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, so this is a good, I think this is going to be a great conversation. Um. And it's not, and we're going to be putting it on both of our podcasts. um, So we want this to flow. We don't, I don't want to have too much questions and answers, but it's just going to be us kind of talking. Um, But prior to all of that, can you just uh, let people know who you are and um, what it is that you do and how did you get to this space of being an attorney and having a podcast?
1: Oh, we could do the whole episode just on on that journey. Okay. Um, but, you know, most people uh, identify me as an attorney first. I see myself mm-hmm. that as, you know, what I do and I'm good at what I do. But I take mm-hmm. pride in being an inspirer and a motivator um, mm-hmm. to the to, to not only the people that I care about, but obviously our audience and anybody that I can touch. Mm-hmm. I'm a Jersey girl born and bred. Through and through, I don't wear Tims anymore, um, oh. but I'm thinking about buying a pair. <laughs> it's all for sure. Uh, Jersey girl through and through. Uh, daughter, sister. I like to think I'm a I'm a pretty good friend mm-hmm. uh, as well. And the journey to being a lawyer and a podcaster. You know, I grew up in the Cosby Show era, and mm. you know, we have a lot of. You say Cosby. Yeah. Uh, that's what I was about to say. There's a lot of <laughs> controversy um, around. Him obviously, but growing up with Claire Huxable on television mm-hmm. and seeing um, a black woman who was successful and was a lawyer and, and had a family, was a wife and a mom, mm-hmm. you know, very early, I was like, hmm, I, I want to be a lawyer, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think at, at the time, I think by the time I was four, I said I wanted to be a district attorney. I would learn later that that was not my bag. Mm-hmm. Um, but so everything I worked for. Through my entire academic and professional career was to get to this point i knew very early what i wanted to do i wanted to Mm -hmm. negotiate i like to prove points i like to be assertive um etc so that journey uh, has had its ups and downs Mm -hmm. and uh, my life as an attorney my role as a lawyer has taken on many different forms Mm -hmm. but i've been on this path i've been practicing for 10 and a half years now um but the the podcasting came about uh, because I started December 26th as a blog when I was a lawyer for startups and entrepreneurs because I was seeing, particularly amongst Black startup founders, the level of depression um, that they mm-hmm. were suffering from, and just despair from lack of access to capital, and some obstacles and challenges that are unique to us as business uh, founders, business owners. Um, so I started as started it as a blog to motivate. Outside of being a lawyer, just mm-hmm. wanting to motivate people to keep going, mm-hmm. um, and then went through my own valley experience, and stopped stopped writing, stopped blogging. And eventually, like, pulled the parachute on solo practice as I knew it before and really had to rebuild my life into something that felt good and, and brought me joy. So after coming through that process, I was speaking a lot about my journey. Mm. And through that, somebody suggested to me, like, you should start a podcast. Oh, what am a podcast who wants to listen to me talk right what am I going to talk about Mm -hmm. um but I decided to to start and experiment with that and we were doing 20 minute episodes and I brought my brother DeMarcus in to produce Mm -hmm. and then we started moving in after the first 15 episodes to uh bringing other people's stories in and featuring other uh, guests, primarily guests of color, black and brown folks who had interesting stories. You, I've been fortunate to have you on the show. Yeah. Um, and we've been doing that now. Uh, we are 132 episodes deep, yep. I think. So, um, And we're continuing to press on despite the difficulties and how hard it can be <laughs> sometimes. Um, so that's the condensed version of me as a lawyer and podcasting and how that came about.
0: Oh, this is awesome. So we, mm-hmm. we, we, we're about to, as I say, we're about to unpack some things. Now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay. So let's, 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 so what type of law do you do you practice?
1: So today, so let me let you in on a little secret. If you don't know, okay. um, when you go to law school, mm-hmm. you start to, you know, get into these summer associateships and trying to figure out what you want to do. They want you to pick a track and whatever track you, you're on, that's the one you stay on. So if you're going to be a litigator, you go in as a summer associate, you know, to litigation group, and you're gonna be the person that writes briefs and eventually, I don't even say go to court because it's so rare that you end up in court and okay. It eventually settles or what have you. If you wanna be a transactional attorney that closes deals, handles acquisitions and mergers, the list goes on and on, you focus on that. If you want to be an IP transactional attorney, whatever. My story is interesting in that what I practice law doing today is not what I started in. I started as a litigator. Um okay. And I fell into that because I had done and I've talked about this briefly on my show and um, mm-hmm. some other interviews. But I had done my summer associateships in the Midwest with the intention
2: mm-hmm.
1: of taking the offer out there and being sort of a big fish in a smaller pond. Mm-hmm. And the it was such a racially toxic environment that I made the decision to turn down the offer, which people mm-hmm. you do not do. Right. Because mm-hmm. once you're on again, once you're on the train. You've interned there, they know you. It's hard to get an offer coming out of law school um, if you've interned somewhere else. So and it was this was during the Great Recession, right? Mm -hmm. I graduated in 09, so we had to make decisions about offers at the end of 08. But anyway, so I had I had interned or was a summer associate summer associate in the Midwest as a transactional lawyer, turned the offer down, was like, I don't know what I'm gonna do, but I'm gonna figure it out. Um, and my grandmother was really sick at the time and ended up passing five weeks before my law school graduation, which added mm-hmm. a layer of complexity, because now I'm grieving and trying to figure out what I'm gonna do, right, with in terms of my career. So I took the New York bar, because I was like, I have this interest in startup and entertainment. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to jump into it right away, but let me take the New York bar, because there's only two places to be doing that, and that's California or New York. Yeah. Um, so I took the New York bar that summer of 09, passed the first time, thankfully, Um, and was like, okay, these student loans are going to come due. like, I got to figure out something. So I worked as a contract lawyer first. I didn't, Mm -hmm. I didn't have a a full-time job right away. And I was planning to do that and build the startup entertainment practice. Um, but those partners dangled a full-time offer in front of me and the money looked good, Mm -hmm. but it was a litigation offer. And I was like, I never wanted to be a litigator, but like, this is looking decent.
0: So litigation, can you Mm -hmm. describe litigation for those who don't know?
1: Sure. So litigation, um, the easiest way to describe it is if we don't work this out, we are going to court, right? So Mm -hmm. litigation attorneys are those who are involved in disputes. We decide and and litigation and how I practice it was basically corporate litigation. So you're either Mm -hmm. representing a corporation or you're suing a corporation. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and essentially there's been some wrong that has happened and, the parties can't work it out on their own. So they file a lawsuit. Um, and then that, and I work for a class action firm. So they were, you know, suing for hundreds of millions of dollars on behalf of uh, a class action. So that's, you know, several people who are represented by four or five plaintiffs, but everybody partakes in that, that award, everybody in the class. And I know most people have probably gotten those emails to say, or a piece of mail that says, you may be a member of this class. Did you use? X, Y, and Z product or X, Y, and Z website during this time mm-hmm. period, same thing. Um, so uh, so yeah, I was drafting briefs. I was learning how to depose witnesses, um, appearing in court here and there, not often, um, but appearing in court. Most cases settle before you even get to trial. Um, but if they don't, you're going to trial, right? And that's what we all see on TV where you're know, trying to convince a judge or jury yeah. of your case. So that that's essentially what it is. And I hated it. I hated it. I was a I was a workhorse, which is why they, they made me the offer. I went after bacon, so I know how to put those hours in. Um, but I hated the work. I didn't like the adversarial nature of it. I didn't like the deadline. These hard deadlines working late at night trying to get documents to the court before midnight. Um, and at the time, when I first started working there, I was living working in New York and living on the Jersey shore where I was originally from. Because remember my grandmother had just died. Mm-hmm. I went to law school in DC. I came back. I was staying with my mom and my grandfather who was still alive at the time. And my mom was, you know, his caretaker. And, um, so I was commuting two hours each way
0: mm-hmm.
1: and working the hours of a lawyer. So mm-hmm. I would leave the office sometimes at one, two o'clock in the morning. They would send me home in a car service and I would get right back up at five to go back on the bus, but <laughs> next morning. Um, so I did that and then I ended up, you know, moving closer to New York, but I, I was with them, uh, for a couple of years. And then I decided to make the switch, uh, to solo practice and in the fields that I wanted to be in. And that's the startup and entertainment world, which, um, was a crazy journey in and of itself, but you didn't ask about that yet. So, um, so that's how I started. Then I worked in Startup Entertainment. Um, did a work a lot of media and technology companies, and I took that experience and flipped it into in-house uh opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, and now so now I'm a technology lawyer. I negotiate um contracts for technology and specifically in what I do is uh investment software right now. Okay. But yeah. So, so,
0: so does I, that deal with like IP, like protection, things of that na- nature?
1: Yeah, I mean, so we're on uh Squadcast right now, there are terms and conditions on Squadcast that we adhere to just by logging in. Mm -hmm. Um, But so for what I do is many different things, right? So I may be negotiating licenses for that investment software. Um, Mm -hmm. I may be dealing with the privacy policy that has to be on the website. I may be dealing with terms and conditions for the people who actually use the software. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is an ownership component as well. When you license that software out, you do a custom integration. um, Who owns it? What does the IP look like? Or if you do a special a bespoke version, a custom version for a client
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, who owns the custom design, you know? So all mm-hmm. of those things come up in the work that I do, but at my core, I am a lawyer who drafts contracts and negotiates and closes deals. That's what I do.
0: So that's interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Because uh, we talk about the, 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 the primary reason for my podcast for chicken and waffles is really dealing with relationships. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about you being a, a you know, dealing with contracts, litigation, um, even—I'm um, not sure if you do any mediation. Um, where did you want to start dealing with negotiation? Um,
1: you know what's interesting, though. Like as much as I love to negotiate, mm-hmm. um, I don't like to argue, and sometimes people conflate the two. Uh, but for me, what I like about negotiation is finding a solution that both parties are happy with.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, and what's interesting is that I think I always had that, like I've always been, tried to be a mediator in a sense, in high school uh-huh. I was a peer mediator. So people would get into a fight and I hear uh-huh. my name over the intercom and they'd lock me in a room with the people that fought to try uh-huh. to get them to come to a resolution. Uh-huh. Um, so for me, I think it was always there. Uh, but then when I got into corporate America, I was always interested in the ins, of, ins and outs of how deals got done. And I didn't go to law school right away. I worked okay. in between. So um, for me, I I like, I like don't like uh, contention. And it happens, even negotiations, you know, right. it can get tense. But for me, I'm always like, how can we get to an amicable resolution for all parties involved? So who I am as a person is. I'm always looking for an amicable resolution um, and I enjoy that part of my job. It's who I, I've always been and I'm fortunate enough to make really great money uh, doing it today and finding creative solutions. And I'll tell people like, the drafting of the contracts, that's a necessary evil. It's something I have to do every day. But what really gets me excited in my job is the the conversation and figuring the ins and outs of a deal out and coming to an agreement you know, with the other party. And I negotiate all day, every day. Mm. So, so it works so
0: so what so so because when we talk about relationships right um there's two people there's terms in a, in a relationship um somebody wants something somebody else wants something else mm-hmm. what are some good uh tips to come to that middle ground where it could be amicable you have peace and the contentiousness. Doesn't have to necessarily be there.
1: Yeah, so it's it's interesting, right? That you you bring this up because I'm always examining this in my romantic life as well, which has had its own challenges. You and I talked about a little bit. We met. But one of the yeah, one of the things that I would say that I use professionally that I think can apply personally is there's never a deal that I have where I get everything that I want, right? Um, and that's why I say you reach an amicable resolution where both sides feel like, you know, they, they, they got at least some of what they needed, a happy medium. So I try to carry that into my, um, my personal life as well. And not just in romantic relationships, but friendships, mm-hmm. familial dynamics, whatever. Mm-hmm. So you, you have to look at your list of things, um, that, that you want. Right. And then you've got to prioritize those things. So when I get on a call with a lawyer, now, the lawyer, sometimes I'll say, listen, these three things, non-starters for me. That That's not something I'm even, a- even able to consider, right? Just, let's just get that out the way. Can you agree to those? And if they say... Okay. Yes. Those are my priorities. Now, everything else we can talk about, right? We can talk about, and I bring that into uh, my personal life, not in the that language, but what are my deal breakers? Like, what are my non-negotiables that I need to feel safe and secure in this friendship and this romantic relationship, what have you. And if you don't understand what those things are for yourself, it's very hard to have a mature conversation with someone else. So like, you've got to get clear on that, those pieces, and it it can't be everything, right? Because you're never gonna get everything that you want. So figuring out what those things are and coming in and being clear about your intentions and and needs there, using the right language to say these things are really important to me. Mm-hmm. If I don't have them, I don't feel safe. I don't feel secure, or whatever the the wh- whatever comes after the if I don't have it. Mm-hmm. And then you have your other things that are nice to have, but if you don't get them. You live. Right. And you have to figure out that balance and come to a place of being able to grow and mature with this other party with those things in mind. Um, and also being prepared if somebody can't honor your priorities or your non-negotiables. I think there's two things to consider there. Either be prepared to walk away or be prepared to reevaluate those non-negotiables and make sure they're realistic. Right. Because if you're non-negotiable is something that really shouldn't be a non-negotiable, that's something you got to work out your own soul salvation on. Um, but if they're legitimate deal breakers, being willing to put it on the line and say, no, th- these things like you're crossing a boundary here for me by not honoring my needs in these areas. So the same approach I would have professionally, I definitely have personally in that and trying to be clear, clear eyed about the non-negotiables versus the nice to have.
0: Mm. So that's that's uh, I think that's that's powerful, right, because uh, a lot of times we're not clear on uh, the things that we want. So, so for instance, right, just um, c- communication. I was just watching uh, something with my with my children. Uh, it was uh, Cobra Kai. And every time something happened, uh, there wasn't any clear communication. So somebody might see another party with somebody, but they don't know the terms of why they were sitting down Uh, having a conversation. Sometimes it was like a date or it might've been a father son dynamic, but because they was just looking and not really expressing how they felt, you know, they kind of assumed, right. Um, A lot of times. So I think in business you have to, it's easier because you have to go through contracts, you know what I mean? Or you have to, for you to, there's an end goal, right. So, uh, be it we want to make this amount of money, we want to get to this point. Um, in relationships, the, the, sometimes we don't actually know the end goal, we just know that we're having a good time, we know that you know, uh, you have potential, <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, this person, so a lot of times the terms of agreement isn't necessarily clear on what it is that we want or, or how we feel, you know what I mean. Um, so how does uh what were some of the toughest negotiations that you had to go through
1: you know what's interesting um is the toughest negotiation i've ever been through was for the least amount of money on the line uh and and sometimes uh when people are emotions are involved so you talk about entering into business right so um when i was a solo i represented and advise a lot of entrepreneurs but i also handle business disputes mm-hmm. and there was a business dispute that came um to me from two business partners who were going separate ways
2: mm-hmm.
1: and there was one you know they started off as friends and they were in the beauty industry mm-hmm. um, and there was one business the business partner who was trying to leave she had drafted the operating agree- agreement so she was more savvy than the other right the other mm-hmm. business partner but she gr- drafted it in her favor So when it was time for them to split up, the more savvy one was like, oh, I'm entitled to X, Y, and Z. you know. And so then this other party who I was representing was like, oh no, she's not entitled to that. And I'm like, I'm looking at it on paper and actually she is. So then emotions got involved because my client felt betrayed. It's like, we're supposed to be 50-50 partners and you drafted this to your benefit. So what ended up happening is we were. She had to be bought. The one who was leaving, who drafted to her benefit, had to be bought out. And it wasn't that money, much money she was being bought out for. But because of the emotions running high.
0: Based on principle.
1: Based on principle. GP. GP. And let me tell you something about being a lawyer. When people start negotiating based on GP, principle, and emotion, it's about to get real petty. Mm. So we're spending lawyer hours. The other woman's lawyer and me negotiating over like a $5 brush, right? Or like beauty tools. So you're spending more money in attorney's fees because you just want to be right.
2: Mm.
1: Um it was the worst by far the worst dispute resolution I've ever been through and the, it was the least money for me, it was the least money between them on the table, but because People were it was all about principle. Right. And I get that. But at some point, you got to just make wise decisions and cut your losses. Uh, it was the worst couple months <laughs> of my solo mm. uh, career in terms of just a matter because they were so into the minutiae and the minor details just wanting to be right. Um, and I've had really contentious negotiations with millions of dollars on the line. Mm-hmm. But that those few thousand dollars, whatever it was, was actually the worst.
0: So, so how did they. So it was just somebody just had to be bought out. Did they come to, now, Did emotionally, did they come to any type of agreement or they just no. split, parted with? There was,
1: there was no um, emotional uh, resolution. <clears throat> what ended up happening is the lawyers, we had to put our foot down and be like, listen, because neither of us were making our full fee off this. Mm-hmm. This is another thing. When people are not paying market rate for what mm-hmm. you do, most don't value it because it's not their money, right? They're not, they're not it's not draining cash for them the way it should. So they're going back and forth because neither of us are, are going to get our fee. Right. I was doing this as a favor. Um, this person was doing it as a favor. So we were getting paid, but not really. So as the lawyers, we had to come together and be like, listen, like get, you get your client in line. I get mine in line. Right. And it got to the point where we just had to put our foots down, our feet down. I'm talking like from down south. Foots. <laughs> <laughs> foots. DeMarcus is in the <laughs> background talking about, but anyway, um, We had to put our feet down and say, okay, this is what we're going to get. And you're not getting any more than that. And I need you to accept that because now you're wasting my time. You're running the clock. You're wasting the other lawyer's time and that's not going to work. And ultimately, ethically, it is the client's decision. If they decide they don't want to cave, you just got to keep going. We have a professional responsibility to honor their request. But as a lawyer... Part of being a good lawyer is being a psychologist, right? A good therapist and trying to get people to see things, um, see their, the error of their ways and how they may be delaying the matter. So eventually we resolved the financial piece of it, but they their friendship was permanently severed from that. And I understand why. Um, but at some point I tell my client, you got to think about your business first and you dragging this out is not helping your business in any way.
0: Mm. So so, so one, is it important to have a lawyer prior to getting into a business agreement, like, you know, as protection?
1: Listen, I always tell people uh, it's better to have a strong uh, prenup than a messy divorce. Right. And the same concept applies to business, right? Mm -hmm. Everything is good in the beginning. Um, And this can apply to relationships, right? When you're in the honeymoon period, like, Mm I found my business partner. We're about to do this. We have the same vision. It's all gonna be gravy. Um, we're gonna build this business, it's gonna be awesome. Oh, don't worry about who who paid for what and you know what the splits are. Everything's 50-50, we're good, right? All that is great until you decide, A, that you don't wanna be in business with that person anymore, mm-hmm. B, the expenses are getting high, or C, you get really profitable. Mm-hmm. Then people start thinking about things, you know, very differently. So I always tell people like, I don't mm-hmm. care if it's your best friend. DeMarcus and I are siblings. We shared a room as kids. We run a podcast together. But guess what? Everything related to to December 26th podcast is on paper. Mm. Um, Our ownership, et cetera. And I mean, this is the last person I ever expect to have drama with, but it's just good business practice, right? So um, I always tell people like, I don't care if it's your cousin, your wife, anybody. Memorialize what the terms are today. Because when you get to the point where you're not in that bliss phase anymore and things have taken a turn... It's very hard to negotiate from a level headed place. And I've seen it happen over and over and over again. So, so um
0: and, and we've had this conversation with uh with lawyers prior to, but I'm 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 leading in a different route. So, mm-hmm. so, so walk with me a little bit. So is it important to have and what's I think is an out clause, um, just in case things don't like you know, the term like let's, let's just use the podcast, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Let's just say you know it goes to an 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 exorbitant amount of money, and all of a sudden, uh, one party might not want to. You know, they just want to sell sell the business, right? Is it important to have you know that those terms, like when if we was to sell that this amount to, uh, what's that? To uh, this is how much uh, you know each party will be getting. Is that
1: absolutely, and not just. If you want to sell the business, if one party wants to to get out, right, what, what do they have the rights to do? Do they have the rights to just sell their shares, like their interest in the business to a third party that you don't know? Do you have a right of first refusal as the partner that's staying in the business to, to basically examine the offer of sale and purchase from them? Do you have to approve whoever they're trying to be in? These are all things that have to be worked. They should be worked out. All the outs, right, that you mentioned should be worked out in advance. And this is why people, you know, I always chuckle when people are like, oh, I looked on the internet. I don't need a lawyer. Or I you know, I, I went to Legal Zoom, right? And I'm not saying that the internet is not a wealth of information. I'm an attorney. I've been practicing, like I said, 10 and a half years. Google is the first place I start with everything. But the difference between those who are trained to do what I do and those aren't is you're looking at what's there on paper. I'm thinking about what's not. Mm-hmm. So how do we insulate ourselves from risk? by addressing the things that the contract doesn't speak to, right? So I'm thinking about all the ways this can go bad and how do we solve for that in the, the contract? And everybody, there are people who aren't lawyers who have that skill. A lot of business people do, but everybody doesn't. Um, so when you talk about business partnership, you absolutely should be considering with your prospective partners, um, if this goes south, how do we get out of it, right? Um, do Is it a unanimous decision? Because what is it, one in five? uh businesses actually are successful so a lot of people and it takes longer for most businesses than people realize so a lot of people get into this and it's all great and they burn out and they're like I can't do this anymore or it's bleeding money or you know I'm just not enjoying it I don't like working with you so if any of those or if somebody dies god forbid if any of those things happens how how are that person how's that person's ownership interest addressed and all that can be solved for in the beginning but it rarely is with a lot of people no i get it
0: i get it and 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 being a lawyer right you know some people you you know you you get a lawyer as it pertains to uh protecting your 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 assets and everything like that um there's been a conversation that that's been uh primarily like just been uh building up and just going throughout the internet and throughout uh, our community as Black men and Black women um, about protecting Black women, right? Um, and, you know, being a lawyer, understanding protection, number one, because you have your, your brother, like, you know, you have you have that, uh, you have him as a, I would say, as a, a, a good protector. Um, then also from a legal perspective um, and, and from a business perspective, you know, in corporate America, um, how? What are some things that we as black men can do to protect our our women? You know, uh, because we, we, we view you as you, you have value. You bring you, you, everything that you do. It, 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 you know what I mean? Doubles. You know what I mean? You multiply the, 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 the worth of uh, of not just black men or the black family, but also in America. You know what I mean? Like if you look even at the political. Uh, arena so what are some things that you think we could do um as as men as black mm-hmm. men to protect black men?
1: yeah you know it's it's interesting you, you brought this up um because I've been having a lot of conversations behind the scenes with my colleagues
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh you know former female colleagues that I, I've had and who feel never feel protected um, and feel more like they're in a competition. If you want to take it from a corporate perspective and a competition with black men. Um, so let's, let's start there, right? Let's, let's start there um, mm-hmm. from a professional perspective. What we got to stop doing is engaging. And I've brought it up on the show in oppression Olympics, right? So when a, a black woman or even a black man speaks to um, what they're experiencing in terms of opposition or structural inequality, get into this debate about who has it worse, right? That, that's the first thing. Um, so, and I, I know it's hard because I will never downplay what black men go through in this country, right? In, in corporate America or not. So I, I don't want to minimize that. Um, but the reality of it is, and you know, I, I, my brother and I have this conversation all the time in that as accomplished as I am, I consider myself an incredibly strong woman. Um, there's a part of me that desires for the, the black men in my life to protect me at all costs, because that's what I grew up seeing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that level of, of leadership and, and masculinity. So I would say as a step one, um, acknowledging that, uh, this is, we are not in a competition and though you may be experiencing, uh, opposition as well, or struggle being willing to acknowledge that, but also stand up for us. Right. And not make it about it. This versus them versus this, us women versus men. Um, that's number one, number two, acknowledge our sensitivity and our fragility. Right. Because as much as I pride myself on being a, a strong black woman, I want to take the cape off sometimes.
0: So so can I just stop you right there? Because mm-hmm. You said it two times, right. You, 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 I think the narrative that we hear is you're strong, you're independent. And then when we try to help and we try to, you know, do things in a way that we, we try to help in a way that we, in our way is kind of, we kind of get pushed back, you know what I mean? Or we get rejected. So we know you're strong. You know that you're strong. However, we have to change the narrative that narrative because we know that you're strong, but we also have to feel from a distance that that vulnerability, you know what I mean, at times. How can we have that engagement, like that understanding? You know what I mean?
1: So I want to call out something that you said yeah. when we try to help you in our way. Um, that is a chief complaint amongst women, myself mm-hmm. included. Mm-hmm that men sometimes come from a place of ego about what works for them in terms of what they think we need, um, or what they would need in these, in these, uh, in that situation, when the reality of it is the way you may be trying to help me is not how I need help. Right. So mm-hmm. this requires a lot of communication. And I'm not saying women always <laughs> do this, right. Because just like you're trying to help in your way, we have an assumption that you know how we need to be helped. And that's, um,
0: and, that's and that's, and that's the thing. So, like we'll see something and we'll just do it not having that 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 conversation right Mm -hmm. so we need that we need that saying can you do it like this right and then we also have to have that patience among each other you know what i mean because a lot of people this is first generation of of communication you know what i mean on a vulnerable level you Mm -hmm. know what i mean so We need we both both parties need that communication and the the space and the patience to be to be vulnerable.
1: Exactly. So when you say you know we try to help in our way, I think for me that's why when I say see my vulnerability or our vulnerability and our needs, that involves conversation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely right. And and I'll say this as a woman because it's something I've I've been working on and continue to work on that. Stop. You got to stop expecting men just to know. Right. Just to be mind readers about mm-hmm. what it is that you need. No, you have to speak up. Right. That's number one. And you mm-hmm. might speak up and they may fail you the very next week. Right. It's mm-hmm. it's never going to be. I don't know anybody, male or female, who's going to knock out of the park 110 percent of the time. Mm-hmm. So it, we've got to extend grace, I think, so, to both parties. And like you mm-hmm. said, this this era of communication and, you know, black women. Out earning black men and all this other stuff, there are a lot of nuances and dynamics here that there's no blueprint for. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think, and and also I will say, you know, just like I said that men will fail us, we're gonna fail you, right? Because when you've been operating from a place of strength and independence for so long, even when you say, This is what I need, I need to be able to feel vulnerable and I need to feel unprotected, because your default setting may be the very opposite of that. You may not know how to receive it. So, so it's a dance, and it's a dance that requires patience and it requires a lot of talking about needs um and desires. And I'm I'm you know, I'm a huge proponent of therapy. So mm-hmm. bring in another party uh as as well to talk about it. But when we when we talk about uh protecting to go back to your uh original question, all mm-hmm. that feels um a bit inward in terms of our relation to each other. Mm-hmm. Um Another thing I think is very important. It's my third and final point on that: this, be willing to present a unified front and defend us publicly.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, stand up and say no, right? No, no, this this is not going down like this, right? And and a lot of times I think the frustration that women um have, and I watch the debates on Black Twitter and stuff, is you know when there's one man who's disrespecting a, a black woman and the men around him stay silent and and the argument is always like, well, that's not me. That's not all men. That's just him. Mm -hmm. But you know what? Parting of part of protecting is being able to stand up and say, nah, bro, like this, this, this can't happen. And the same responsibility should be put on us as women. You know, when a woman is out of pocket pulling her coattail and I will say in my circle, we do it all the time. We're, we're very honest with each other um, about our interactions with men at work personally romantically and and if if somebody's out of pocket you're like no that was really disrespectful and you need to fix it Mm -hmm. um so those conversations need to be to be had and i think part of protecting each other is being willing to hold our own gender accountable as well
0: that's 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 good that's good um i and, and so so because this is you know my podcast i i have these conversations also with another young man I'm looking at right, <laughs> right, right here. So DeMarcus, if you could, could unmute your, your phone. Cause I, I would like for, um, so for, for, for everybody that doesn't know, um, uh, DeMarcus is, uh, Delicia's, uh, brother. And we, 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 have these conversations. Um, I, and I was listening to, uh, I believe it was, uh, Jennifer, uh, Waterman Pastor, and and she and she, I I know her from from the past, so it was it was it was a pleasure and a joy to hear everything that she was saying, right? And um, so me me and Demarcus, we have these conversations just on, you know, the communication gap, um, as it pertains to black men and black women, and how we could kind of, uh, you know, mend that gap. So when when it comes to protecting black women, what what are some of your thoughts, brother Demarcus?
3: I was not expecting to be pulled into this. Yeah, I know. I got you. But um <laughs> my thoughts. I think um, when it comes to protecting Black women, um, my thoughts are that you kind of have to listen um, and have mm-hmm. conversations, sort of which Delisha was kind of talking about before, like listen to what their experiences are because mm-hmm. there's a lot of things like, for instance, that I wasn't aware of until I, me and Delisha actually started living together. Mm-hmm. And she told me about, like these experiences you would have just walking down the street and there's things that I was never aware of because again, I'm a man. Like, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure of myself, but I, I think it, it starts with actually having, um, very real conversations about women and what experiences that they have and not trying to downplay or what about, but actually just sitting, listening and hearing what they have to say and taking it to account. And a lot of times what I've realized, like even with my own interactions, I mean that's my sister, so I'm gonna have her back, whatever. Yeah. But like, there's been times, like just in the store, where I just walk up next to her, like, "Yo, is there a problem here?" And a person's whole demeanor changes. Mm-hmm. It don't require me threatening nobody, put my hands on nobody. I'm just like, "Yo, what's going on over here?" And a guy will go from level ten down to four. Now, our brother see what ha- happened was. Yes, so, there's always this assumption that. Like you gotta step up and do something wild that's gonna get you put in county jail or something. That's not the case. A lot of times it's just really stepping up and saying, Hey, what's going on? Like how can we work this out? Being like a, a little mediator. Don't get me wrong, I will drop somebody on their head if I need to for my yeah. sister. But yeah. I think the assumption around this conversation is all the time is like you gotta jump in on level ten when actually just your presence alone can smooth the situation out. Yes. I hope I answered that question.
0: No, 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 you did because I'm I'm going to Galicia and and sometimes, you know, uh, men feel as though uh, their presence is needed, even just the physical presence. You know what I mean. So, how can we, like, like you know, have that that balance? You know, where how do we know that dance that you talked about? How do we, how can we deliver that dance where just our, knowing that our presence is being felt and being respected? You know what I mean in times of, of, you know, of vulnerability.
1: Yeah. And this is where I think women, you know, myself included, need to do some work. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I don't talk a lot about my personal story. Uh, it's, you know, it's kind of splattered in here and there in the show and other interviews that I've done, but, um, I've had conversations with, with men in my entire dating life, but particularly from like 18 to 30. Right. Mm-hmm. So um during that period, one of the things that I would hear from men is like, man, like you don't disrespect me. You're really chill. Like my guy friends like you. You know, everything is cool there. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks you're like this cool chick, but I feel dispensable. Mm. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like you feel dispensable. We hanging out, you just said like I'm a cool chick. But my energy had always been, and it's something that still happens, you know, I can be honest about that. That this is great that you're here, but if you leave, I'm gonna be okay. I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. And that very well may be true, right? That that I I, I will survive. I have bad breakups like everybody. Um, but for me, I had to explore with the therapist where that was coming from, mm-hmm. right? And and there were a lot of layers there, mm-hmm. um, particularly starting with my relationship with my father, who was never, even though my parents were married, you know, then eventually divorced. My parents, you know, I was the product of a marriage. They were together. My dad, with you know, with his issues had been in and out. So I grew up with this insecurity about whether my father was going to be there, right? Um, because he would disappear, you know, for periods of, of time. So over time, as I got into adulthood, I had worked this protective measure of being indifferent to whether someone stayed in my life or went right. Because I had already experienced, you know, the utmost abandonment with the first male figure in my life. Um, so you have that piece. And then when you add the economics of it, of who I am professionally and what I'm able to do for myself, um, it's really like, well, if you go, I'm gonna be cool. Cause you know, I'm, I'm good over here. So I had to acknowledge, um, my needs. Right. Am, am I ever going to be a woman who's like, I need you with me 24 seven. Maybe not. That that's just not how I'm wired. And I'm willing to acknowledge that. But there are things um, and ways in which men add value to my life where that needs to be more uh readily ex- expressed. Mm-hmm. Um, so now you gotta be comfortable with something. I'm not saying it's just any old body where I'm gonna be like, please be here in my space. But um, if this person is adding value to me and and I'm adding value to them, being more open and vocal about that. And when I start to feel like that. That piece about well, you can go or stay. I've got to figure out where that is coming from. Mm -hmm. Is that coming from a place of a man not moving with intention, right? And coming to me in from a genuine place and from integrity and with the vision for how he wants to be in my life? Is it coming from that place, or is it just me operating from an avoidant uh, attachment style and protecting my own heart and space, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And I'm not even talking about necessarily romantic. This could be just male female dynamic as as friendship. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to evaluate, um, as a woman, the energy that you give off and what's the source of that energy. And if there's a person with good intentions, who's in your life and and wants you to make space for them, you need to do that. Right. And, um, that at first may feel uncomfortable. (laughs) And the reality of it is you can be hurt in the process of being vulnerable. But if, if we want to progress, uh, as black couples, because I'm all I'm all about black love, um, and even black friendship and just having healthy relationships that are strictly platonic with men. If we want to progress, progress in that way, there's a level of vulnerability that has to happen. And there's some risk with that. And the outcome may not be uh, what you want it to be. And I've experienced that as well. But there's always a lesson in growth that comes with it. Um, so I, I, w- I would say for the woman, I, you know, I'm charging women. You know, when you want someone to to have space in your life, even if you don't need it, if you don't need the space, watch how you communicate and present yourself and your feelings about that. Because, you know, men, men want to feel wanted and they want to feel like you, you want them around and they bring value to you. So I think that's some internal work that that we have to do, but also I will charge men here. And I know it's hard not to move from a place of ego, right? But um, also if it don't, it don't quite work the first time. (laughs) <laughs> Don't give up on her. Because I think a lot of times men get that first reaction that they weren't looking for. And it's like, oh, well, you know what? I tried. I'm out. Um And if, if there's something there, if there's a lot of good there that's not toxic, it's going to take some work for both parties to find their rhythm for sure.
0: This this right here, we're going to have to like really like take a footnote and you're going to have to take a, a, a pen and a pad. You know what I mean? Because this is powerful because now speaking for me, Mm-hmm. You know, as a father, you know, um, what I've started to realize is with my, my daughter, I have three, three boys and I have a daughter. And what I started to realize is that uh, even when she doesn't, when she expressed or she acts like she doesn't want me, she still needs me. Right. And what I've struggled with is when the wall of the guard comes up, I don't know how to. Break through it, you understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So the struggle, the struggle has been, is that you know, as a parent, you know, um how do you, you know, get through that 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 moment from from a father to a daughter? Because
2: mm-hmm.
0: ultimately, I don't want her to get to that point where is when she gets into a relationship, she could just put that guard up and it's like, you know, I'm good. You know what I mean? Because what in the relationships that I've been in, what I started to notice was, um, when people, when I'm a server, you know what I mean. I, I work my, I work on service. I'm a people person. So if you don't need me, I'm like, okay, you you good, as opposed to, you know, tapping in. how are you doing? You know what I mean. Like the distance is is being created. You know what I mean. Um, and then. but if somebody needs me, I'm always there. You know what I mean? And that's where I think guys, like they'll go to the young lady who, who's needy, who wants everything, but a sister who's, who's independent, she might find herself being independent because she doesn't fully communicate that, that vulnerability.
1: Right. Does that make sense? That does. That does. And, you know, speaking from the, the, parent-child relationship, you know, I think I I got to a a point, I don't know at what age, I think it was before I was a teenager though, that I, that I learned to put that guard up for my own protection, Mm -hmm. you know, with my father, because he wasn't present and we didn't have a healthy dynamic. And that's completely different from your situation. But on the very other end of the spectrum, I had an amazing relationship with my godfathers. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I had two, one was in the military, so he had moved around, but I had one in Jersey Mm -hmm. and you know so it's interesting when I tell you know my story and people they hear the part you know just the snippets about my dad and like oh she got daddy issues right um but they don't know the part about my godfather who was amazing and it's actually the reason why my standards are so high it's not because of the fractured relationship with my father how I approach relationships in some ways but it's because I know when it's done right what it looks like um so my godfather it, I will never forget, um, and I don't think I've ever told this story uh, publicly.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But the one thing I was talking about my my, my Godfather publicly is he would always say every time I was talking to him on the phone or leaving his house, he would always say, "Who loves you?" The Godfather, right? And he all and it became this running joke. But no matter if I was in you know tween years to puberty, you know when people get weird, kids get weird and stuff, he always made sure t- that I knew that I that he loved me, and he would always be there. And so that ran as a tape in my mind. But one time I had uh, two God brothers. He had two sons and we got along great. And I would come to the house. I would always stay in the guest room upstairs and they would share a room downstairs. And um, one time my older godbrother like, made some joke. And my younger godbrother came to the stairs and told me the to joke on me. I didn't think anything of it, right? I was like, yeah, whatever. You know, just kids being kids. I might've been like 13. And I heard my godfather bust in the room. And, like, you know, we grew up black, so uh, a belt was used. Mm-hmm. <laughs> could never happen now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember him oh, saying no. to them. Yeah, it doesn't, I don't know. You <laughs> might never talk about that. But I not, remember not him saying, me, <laughs> I, he said, don't you ever disrespect your god sister, like that. And he said, you have no idea what she's going, going through at home. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, being shocked that it happened because it wasn't that big of a deal to me. Um, But in that moment, I felt so safe that this man cared about me so much, right, that he would um, avenge my honor, in a sense. And so because I grew up with a man who, no matter where I was in my life and what I was going through, made sure that he knew, I knew that he was always going to be present until the day he died, he was, Mm -hmm. would do whatever he could to make sure that I felt secure, that I was provided for, but also would protect me. Right from being disrespected in that way, um, that consistency, even when I didn't value it because I was a hormonal teenager or whatever, was important. Um, so, talking about your daughter, even if it feels like it's not, you know, the wall's going up and it's not really mm-hmm. um, registering, even if she doesn't understand the value of that today. Mm-hmm. When she reaches adulthood and she starts entering that male-female dynamic from a romantic perspective, she is going to think back to that consistency. Mm -hmm. Um, And it'll absolutely uh, influence the way she interacts with men in a positive way. Mm That's powerful. That's powerful.
2: So wearing the Black Men Are Dope and Black Women Are Dope shirts has been pretty amazing like I would walk around and people would look at my shirt and there are some people who looked very uncomfortable but then there were people who were nodding in agreement and that just boosted up this sense of pride that I have of being a strong black woman as well as being having having strong black men in my life and I just want to share that message with the world and a lot of the times, we think that we can only share that message from verbally, you know, talking about our black, our black men and black women being so dope. But you know what? I can share that message without even opening my mouth and saying the word. I just put the shirt on and walk around and let the and I let the fashion speak for itself.
0: Go to wwwmralhardycom forward com for shop and put in the promo code Chicken and Waffles. Um, yeah, I. I- I think, you know, right there in 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 prior episodes, we talked about the residue of of slavery, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And, and and white supremacy, you know what I mean, just call it what it is, you know, um, and how that has affected the black family, the whole the black dynamic, you know what I mean? And us as black men, I was listening to somebody and it was talking about the the vulnerability. We're taught just to be angry, you know, when mm-hmm. I mean? we feel. We're just taught that that anger <laughs> is the best emotion because we can't say that we're sad, we're hurt, you know what I mean? We can't even be too happy. You know, back in the day, you ain't smiling pictures, you know what I mean? <laughs> you just You just had to pose, you know what I mean? So we couldn't express, like, true emotion, you know, because anger is really a secondary emotion so mm-hmm. so and then that translates into our relationships with our with our women with our children and then you know our t- children are 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 being raised by unemotional uh fathers you know what i mean distant fathers and they could be in the home but they they're really distant you know what i mean i think this generation is trying to and they're, they're t- we're taking better steps you know um so i I I would applaud you know you just coming to that realization you know what I mean of of everything now um Demarcus let let me ask you um what are some things that you're doing as it pertains to preparing for like emotionally for in, in data
3: so what are some things that I'm doing
0: emotionally like are you preparing are are do you have do you feel like you have that emotional awareness of of not just being a protector but being vulnerable you know what i mean in a relationship uh you know being, or like leading towards marriage or even in a, a long long-term relationship
3: I, I'll, I'll keep it a bean with you i didn't even realize i was emotionally unavailable until maybe like a year or two ago mm-hmm. um because it's just natural for me mm-hmm. i, I kind of grew up the same way uh, I grew up in the same household Delicia did. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the men that we did have around, they carried themselves in a certain way. Um, mm-hmm. You're were you were to, expected to carry yourselves and so you shoulder a lot of things because oftentimes, and you could probably speak to this out of your own experiences, but mm-hmm. like when you're young and you say how you feel, especially going into those teen years, your voice gets a little deep. Mm-hmm. Man, the, the feedback you could get from that, you're just expressing mm-hmm. yourself, but yeah. it comes off as you being angry. So you just kind of bottle those emotions and yeah, yeah, yeah. um so you know i, I, I in, in all honesty i've been i probably probably in the last two years since i um realized that i'm a very emotionally unavailable person um at the times i've been there I'm trying to take more actions to like explain myself and explain myself in a clear way and the reasons why i behave the way that i do mm. um instead of just saying you know the usual like oh, okay. And then <laughs> don't talk to somebody for like two weeks.
0: You yeah,
3: know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um. And I'm I'm a, I'm a work in progress. I'm nowhere near where I need to be, but I mean the step, the first step to fixing the problem is admitting that you have one.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, now, how important is it that you have your sister there as a as a woman to because like for me, I didn't grow up in the house uh, just with my mom. You know what I mean? My mom is so so her per, her, her perspective, right? It it, it really comes off she's raised around men, raised like, so she kind of, her perspective comes from a a, a man's kind of perspective, you know what I mean? Not a man, but, you know, she's protective of men. You know what I mean? Growing up in the house with your sister, does that, did that help you? Like you said, you had conversations now to understand the things that she's going through. Um, Is that helping you now to, when you're talking to women, Um, just as friends, right? To kind of understand their perspective, like the things that they might be going through as African-American sisters.
3: Oh, of course. Um, I I think me and my sister probably got, I mean, we've always been close, but in adulthood, we've probably gotten like 10 times closer. Mm -hmm. Um, And just having conversations, hearing about her life, what she has going on, whether it be professional, personal, romantic, it just gives perspective, Mm -hmm. right? And then you give people more of the benefit of the doubt. It's like, Mm -hmm. It's weird because men talk about women all the time, but honestly, like, you know, how many of you have real platonic relationships with women? Yeah. Are these women you're just dealing with, you're in situations with or relationships with? Like, so you're going to have a biased opinion. That's going to be your view of all people. It's kind of like, you know, asking the police officer that has no black friends about how they feel about black people. And their only interactions are with, you know, some dude, some people doing something they have no business doing. And mm. work, like, you're going to have a skewed view. but having um i don't know if that was a good example to use but mm-hmm. having, but having like um somebody that you can be close to and then you trust and talk about their own experiences it it you extend grace and mercy to other people and realize all right this person might be going through something before i dive off the deep end you know what i mean i feel like as a man like that's sort of necessary to the to the conversation you all were having a little bit earlier it's like if you're genuinely trying to build something with someone, you see the potential, you'll extend them some more grace because it's mm-hmm. like, you know, she's only acting like this because X, Y, and Z has happened to her in her past, right? Mm-hmm. So she may be acting out like this right now. I might get an apology, but like if this person is barking on me, I might just want to chill for a little bit and we have real conversation later on versus me just being like, all right, forget it then. And I'm not talking to you for the next six months.
2: Mm.
0: So, 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 um, Delisha, um, being, an attorney, right? Negotiate, negotiating. Um, Do you have a list when you, when you're in relationships? Like, do you have a certain criteria that, you know?
1: That, that list is a work in progress. (laughs) Let me just say that. Um, and you know, I talk to women who are kind of at my level, you know, professionally and, finance law medicine whatever Mm -hmm. and most are at the point where they're like you know some have their own delusions about how much money a man has to make at at this level i know that um that may not happen right he may not make more money than me so that that is not that's not for me that's not something that's on the table Mm -hmm. but what is on the table related to that is you have to be comfortable and confident in where you are at your station in life Mm -hmm. And what I have found in my dating life is that uh I don't like to generalize. So, but anecdotally, this has been my experience. I, you know, have met somebody who doesn't make the money that I make or just is not as ambitious as I am, not as industrious, is not driven to achieve to the level that I am. Mm-hmm. All that's fine. Um, and I am fine with that. But what becomes a problem is they fall into one or two categories. And one is looking for me. Looking to be kept, right? Mm. I don't care if you make a third of what I make. Don't come to me talking about, oh, I'm gonna be a kept man. That's just, that's gonna be a turn off like right away, right? Because we pull our resources together and we build a life for our family together. Um, so that's number one, they, that category. Or the other category is because of who I am and because of what I've accomplished and because of the way I've worked to put my ducks in a row, I shine a spotlight unintentionally on what they haven't done.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So then, you know, they're they're trying to work that out internally, but that ego is getting in the way and it's affecting how they're treating me. Right. So it's it's a blow to their self-esteem, which often manifests in two ways. One, trying to find angles to cut me down, right? Because that's the only way they feel like they gotta dim my light. So they feel like they're just shining brighter. Or consider themselves, considering themselves a failure before they even try. Right. So it's like, well, I'm not doing what you're doing. I'm not making moves where you are. So I'm not a worthy contender here. It's like, but did I say that? No, you said that. Right. Um, but what I have learned is that if a man doesn't inherently have a confidence in himself, I cannot give it to him. Even if I try, I may fill that void temporarily, but it is not sustainable. Um, so for me, when I talk about, you know, career and ambition and money, it's not a marker for me about you got to be this to see it. You got to be fiscally responsible. Absolutely. because bills got to get paid, you know, and I've worked very hard to have good credit and all those other things. So if you don't have that, we need to talk about it and figure out how you're trying to get there. Um, so yeah, th- that's the case. But, uh, above all of that, it is, what is the vision that you have for your life? And are you confident? And secure in that vision, because if you're not being with somebody like me, it's just only going to magnify that insecurity or that lack of confidence or lack, that lack of direction. Um, so for me that that's something on the list that ain't changing and I've tried to, to ignore it. No, <laughs> it's, it's an absolute, um, necessity. And the other thing I, I want to say this here, which I have learned recently is very important to me. Um, one of the things that I have found is the communication piece is great, but there's been a byproduct of this mm-hmm. that is driving me and a lot of women I know crazy. Mm-hmm. All the talking in the world and then no action to follow it up. It's no different than having a meeting professionally, and people have takeaways, and you come back to the next meeting, and those takeaways have not been acted upon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I I find that one of the things that we struggle with often on both sides of the table is we doing all this talking and expressing vulnerability. But then, you know, we put, pick out we take all the baggage out and we showing you every piece of baggage and then we pack it all up and carry the suitcase, put it back in the closet. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're not actually unpacking it and keeping it empty. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that forward movement that when we talk about, okay, here are the issues here and what are the things we, we need to do better? Making sure that there is action there, right, and just not telling me as a man what you're gonna do. What are you doing today, right? When we come back and talk about this again, how, did we go from A to B? Because if not, you're wasting my damn time. Oh, I didn't. <laughs> Clearly, I'm, I have strong you, feels about this. I didn't you, that. You are
0: on my podcast. You might want to <laughs> leave it on yours.
2: <laughs>
1: um. So yeah, I, uh, I, I have. I struggle with that if I don't because I'm an action-oriented person, right? So it's okay. And here's the thing, I actually read a tweet last night that I loved. Um, it I don't remember exactly what it said, but it said, get into a relationship where you feel comfortable to be able to say, I hear you, I don't have a response right now, but let me take it back and think about it. But know that I hear you and see you. I would rather that give somebody the time and space to wrap their heads around what I've said. And someone telling me they get it and what they're about to do
0: and then they don't act on it mm-hmm. That's you know good. that's good um i see see now when we're talking about the action, i think uh one thing that you mentioned it was the accountability right you have your your your, your girlfriends your your, your, your your ladies to help mm-hmm. you be accountable i think um i think men also need those those accountability brothers or accountability partners To Mm -hmm. help them to stay accountable to who they are, who they said that they're going to do, even outside of their relationship with anybody. Right. Mm -hmm. It's really helping them with their relationship with themselves, you know, because and I can speak um, for myself. Uh, When. I got divorced, right, I had I got around a group of brothers, they 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 helped me to, to from a spiritual perspective, emotional perspective, but then. They helped me to start putting things into place, you know what I mean? And say, all right, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. What's your deadline on this? What's your deadline on this? You know what I mean? Because because now I think men need those type of uh, markers, you know what I mean? And then coming from another man, another man that might have been there, you know what I mean? A therapy, you know, but also that accountability on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month type of basis, you know what I mean? Like you, you're not just going to hang out with your boys and do nothing and, and do nothing. You know what I mean? And and, and let's look at it from a a a, a sports perspective, uh, Demarcus. I see you with a Jets hat on. I, I don't know uh, <laughs> what that means. A uh, shirt, <laughs> shirt on. But uh, but in, in, in sports, right? We like LeBron. We like Michael Jordan. We like Kobe because each and every year they get better. You know what I mean? They they, they go into the gym and they do doing something different to elevate their game. And I think as men, we have to do that also each and every year, there should be a marker. There should be some things to elevate us as men from a spiritual, emotional career wise and things of that nature. You know what I mean? And then when you have those goals, you start putting the the, the, the people and the pieces together to reach them. You know what I mean? I think sometimes women miss that part and. And, and evaluating a man, you know what I mean. They look at, they might look at his home, they might look at if he has kids, but his accountability. You know, what what the, what are your friends doing? You know what I mean. Are they accountable to you? What are you? What's your brotherhood looking like? You know, because women have that. You know,
1: absolutely, and I'm I'm glad you brought up the the deadline piece because, um, you know, I've been in situations where. You know, I said, okay, here's what I need, right? And and it's often tied to therapy. Like, all right, there's some things we need to work through here. Um, and I'm watching my my girlfriends at this age. Many of them are having the same conversation. So things we need to work through. Um, let's go to therapy. Like, let's just do it. Or if you don't want to go together, I'm gonna be at mine over here. You're you know, there's over or yours over there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I've had this experience more than once. My girlfriends have had this experience more than once. Mm-hmm we've Been told okay, but for whatever reason, the butts never get in the seats or on the couch at the mm-hmm. therapist. So then, as a woman, you feel like, Okay, I don't want to be a nag, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to put a deadline on because that that sounds like I'm trying to sun you, I'm giving you an ultimate ultimatum, and that's not going to go over well. Mm-hmm. So then we back off, but we're secretly stewing, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's like, This is the one thing that I asked you to do, and you're not moving on it. Um, now if my girlfriend, right now, I have a, a really good girlfriend who's been in this relationship for a number of months. And I was like, all right, let's, you know, let's some things. He's calling up for you. Yes, he has his issues, but you going to therapy? Did you make the appointment? I'm, I'm having that conversation consistently. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important, you know, to really highlight what you said for men to be able to hold each other accountable and say, nah, bruh, like, Mm-hmm. What's the date on this? And, and and when we come back together, you know, what's the progress going to be? because women, y'all don't want to hear from us. Um, but ends up happening, what ends up happening a lot of the time is I think we're stewing. We're talking to each other, and they're like, well, did he do X, y and Z yet? No. Six months later, well, did he do X, y, and Z yet? No. And then what happens is you have an a disagreement and the disagreement, somebody blows up, right? A woman blows up, and you're like, you're wilding right now, but she's not wilding from that incident. She's wilding from six months of waiting for you to make good on what you said you were going to do. Right. It's all just is building up and then it comes out. So you are arguing about not just that isolated incident but put everything um, in advance. And I think, you know, there are some things that can't come from us. It's, it's got to come from male accountability. And I think we, as women do that very well. I don't know. I know some women, men who have it, but a lot do not. And I think it's a crucial component um, to be able to see see success in relationships. I, I think,
0: and, and that's where we, those are things that we normally don't see, but we don't have those conversations. Like, you know, we don't have those conversations. Like when your wife asks you to do something, how do you do it? When do you do it? You know what I mean? <laughs> we don't have those, those or or you're in a relationship, she says something, how do you receive it? And how do you present it back to her? We don't really have those those different conversations a lot of times, like for me, I'm privileged to have, you know, my father, you know, and other men that are married for, you know, 20, 30 years. And I've seen it from a distance, but I necessarily didn't have those conversations until, you know, after I got divorced, you know what I mean? So now is a different conversation that we have to have. And I think as men, we have to start putting those things in place. Right. So I want to say this, uh, I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for The work that you're doing. Um, Demarcus, I want to say well, man, I want to say thank you. Um also, um, so your question at the end of uh every podcast is how are you extraordinary on an ordinary day? So can can you can you answer that for us?
1: Being extraordinary on an ordinary day is funny because I don't ever think about my own um answers. To that question. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'll go back to what I alluded to earlier. And that is when, you know, I decided to go from solo practice to in-house.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, I had built, I had a vision for this this practice of what I wanted it to be, wanted it to be, and I had invested all my resources, all my time, energy, you mm-hmm. know, money. And I made and a lot of connections. I was on a lot of lists, um, connections that I still hold, you know, to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was burning me out men- mentally, emotionally, spiritually, uh, financially. Because as a black young female attorney, I felt like I had to, which was true at the time. You had to present a certain level of success. You got to have the legit office. Nobody's taking you seriously, especially if they don't look like mm-hmm. you. Um, if you don't so have the office on Fifth Avenue and all this other stuff. Um, but after a while, it it got to be too much. And I talk about this, uh, I've talked about this very early in the show and in talks that I've given where I went home to my mom's for Thanksgiving. I was supposed to be there for a day and I stayed on her couch for a week because I just couldn't pull it together. Um, and now I recognize that as depression and anxiety, uh, but at the time I didn't have a name for it. And I had to rethink entrepreneurship you know, for myself. And I remember going through that process of sort of rebuilding my professional life. And as a part of it, I um, was doing some work that I was way overqualified for, but it was easy. I don't have to, it was legal work, but I didn't have to think that hard, right? It's like the lowest of the low. Like people with my credentials normally don't do this kind of work because they have the world of their oyster. But for me at the time, it was like all I had the capacity for because I was still trying to figure out my practice. And I remember um, feeling like a failure, right? And as somebody who has accomplished everything she's put her mind to, like that, I could not process that. And being, you know, someone that, your community that people have known you their entire lives, your entire life, and they hold you up as the standard for what's possible.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And looking at what my colleague, you know, my classmates were making and they were making three times what I was and moving on, getting married, having kids on their second home. And I remember, um, Having just that point where I was like, I have failed. Like I, I have literally wrecked my life. You know what happened, and and I had to go. and This is I, and this I'm I'm bringing this piece up. People probably think the extraordinary part is rebuilding. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that happened. But the extraordinary part was I went to back to a thera- a therapist mm-hmm. therapy weaves in and all into all of this. Mm-hmm. And I remember she asked me flat out, "Are you angry?" Mm-hmm. At first, I was like, angry? What are you talking about? She said, are you angry? I asked a direct question. And I, for the first time ever since I had been seeing her, just completely broke down. And it was the first point in my life that I had acknowledged that I was angry. And I was angry about a lot of things. I was angry about the hand that I had been dealt. And, you know, I had, I grew up, we grew up Christian. So we grew up, you know, and God doesn't put more on you than you can bear. And, you know, this is the hand I was dealt, but I'm gonna play the heck out of it. And, you know, I didn't come from a broken home. I I came from a healthy home because my parents weren't together all, all the narratives. Right. Mm-hmm. And all that very well may have been true, but there were many things that I was angry about. I was angry about how I was perceived um, and how men tried me in the entertainment industry as an attorney, how, White lawyers tried to play me like I don't know what I was talking about. I was tired of people getting over on me. I was angry that I had made this decision to go to solo practice and put all my resources into it. And it wasn't as successful as I thought it was going to be. And why that is extraordinary for me is, you know, sometimes we act like we can't have negative emotion, right? Because we're go-getters and we're visionaries and everything's going to be great. And, you know, we hustle and team no sleep and all of that just keep going. That is so unhealthy to not acknowledge what it is you're really feeling. Mm. And so for me, the extraordinary piece was willing to express my anger. But what really, like you said, anger is a secondary emotion. What it really was underneath it all was pain. Mm. And being able to stare that in the face and say, the credentials don't matter. You know, what I've done, the achievements don't matter. The money doesn't matter. I am in pain. And how do I address that pain so that for the next chapter of my life in the rebuilding, I'm coming from a place to being healed.
2: Mm.
1: And it was a lot of hard work and it was not fun. And, you know, it was ripping scabs off old wounds and, you know, cleaning it out, letting it heal properly. Um, But I was able to do that.
0: That's, that's awesome. So, now you're leading down. Before we go, how can are you, do you feel safe now?
1: I do um I feel safe. I feel safe. Let me say this and this is a, a real moment of honesty mm-hmm. I feel safe in the life that I've built for myself as a single woman mm-hmm. um, i I look forward to the day where I feel safe with a man in my life, right mm-hmm. who alleviates the need that I feel to have all the the I's dotted and T's crossed myself. Um, So, but I feel safe in the sense that like, I'm confident in who I am, confident in the choices that I've made. Um, I feel safe even in in my, the pieces of me that are are still broken, right? There there are things that, you know, we heal from, but they're triggered. They call up uh, layers that we didn't know were there. There's grief from loss. All those things can come back, right? So I feel safe in the sense that I know when those feelings are called up, I know what to do to wade through them in a healthy manner. Um, So from that perspective, uh, I do feel that I have have safety and I am looking forward to someone coming alongside me. And I would normally bring this up in in an interview out of nowhere, but since you talk so much about relationships, I look forward to somebody coming alongside me who also has a healthy relationship with their own trauma, their own loss and their own failure and is doing the work in the way that I'm consistently doing it to remain whole in spite of everything that they've been through. So um, that's the kind of person that I feel like I can, I can build with. That's awesome. I think we, we, we,
0: we, we finished.
1: <laughs> are we finished or are we done? We, we, we both.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate, it. Um, I appreciate it. Michael Jordan, Shaquille O'Neal, the late, great Kobe Bryant, what do they all have in common? It's not that they just won championships. It's more than them winning four rings, five rings, or six rings like Mike. They all had a coach, and that coach was Phil Jackson. He helped them through the process. And that's my goal, is to help you through the process with our coaching sessions. When you come to me, I want to see you develop in the area of leadership, team, and culture building and conflict resolution. And this is very important to me, emotional intelligence development. So I don't want to see you just be good. I want to see you be great. Go to www.MrAlHardy.com forward slash coaching session. Promo code ALS, Chicken and Waffle.